Institutes of the Christian Religion, Book 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Institutes of the Christian Religion, Book 1, by John Calvin. Translated by Henry Beveridge. Prefatory Address to His Most Christian Majesty, the most mighty and illustrious monarch, Francis, King of the French, his sovereign. John Calvin prays peace and salvation in Christ. Sire, when I first engaged in this work, nothing was farther from my thoughts than to write what should afterwards be presented to your majesty. My intention was only to furnish a kind of rudiments by which those who feel some interest in religion might be trained to true godliness and I toiled at the task chiefly for the sake of my countrymen, the French, multitudes of whom I perceived to be hungering and thirsting after Christ, while very few seemed to have been duly imbued with even a slender knowledge of him. That this was the object which I had in view is apparent from the work itself, which is written in a simple and elementary form adapted for instruction. But when I perceived that the fury of certain bad men had risen to such a height in your realm, that there was no place in it for sound doctrine, I thought it might be of service if I were in the same work, both to give instruction to my countrymen, and also lay before your majesty a confession, from which you may learn what the doctrine is, that so inflames the rage of these madmen who are this day, with fire and sword, troubling your kingdom. For I fear not to declare that what I have here given may be regarded as a summary of the very doctrine which, they vociferate, ought to be punished with confiscation, exile, imprisonment, and flames, as well as exterminated by land and sea. I am aware, indeed, how, in order to render our cause as hateful to your majesty as possible, they have filled your ears and mind with atrocious insinuations. But you will be pleased, of your clemency, to reflect that neither in word nor deed could there be any innocence were it sufficient merely to accuse. When any one, with the view of exciting prejudice, observes that this doctrine, of which I am endeavoring to give your majesty an account, has been condemned by the suffrages of all the estates, and was long ago stabbed again and again by partial sentences of courts of law, he undoubtedly says nothing more than that it has been sometimes violently oppressed by the power and faction of adversaries, and sometimes fraudulently and insidiously overwhelmed by lies, cavils, and calumny. While a cause is unheard, it is violence to pass sanguinary sentences against it. It is fraud to charge it, contrary to its deserts, with sedition and mischief. That no one may suppose we are unjust in thus complaining, you yourself, most illustrious sovereign, can bear us witness with what lying calumnies it is daily traduced in your presence, as aiming at nothing else than to wrest the scepters of kings out of their hands, to overturn all tribunals and seats of justice, to subvert all order and government, to disturb the peace and quiet of society, to abolish all laws, destroy the distinctions of rank and property, and, in short, turn all things upside down. And yet, that which you hear is but the smallest portion of what is said. For among the common people are disseminated certain horrible insinuations, insinuations which, if well-founded, would justify the whole world in condemning the doctrine with its authors to a thousand fires and gibbets. 
who can wonder that the popular hatred is inflamed against it, when credit is given to those most iniquitous accusations? See why all ranks unite with one accord in condemning our persons and our doctrine. Carried away by this feeling, those who sit in judgment merely give utterance to the prejudices which they have imbibed at home, and think they have duly performed their part if they do not order punishment to be afflicted on any one until convicted, either on his own confession or on legal evidence. But of what crime convicted? Of that condemned doctrine is the answer. But with what justice condemned? The very essence of the defense was, not to abjure the doctrine itself, but to maintain its truth. On this subject, however, not a whisper is allowed. Justice, then, most invincible sovereign, entitles me to demand that you will undertake a thorough investigation of this cause, which has hitherto been tossed about in any kind of way, and handled in the most irregular manner, without any order of law, and with passionate heat rather than judicial gravity. Let it not be imagined that I am here framing my own private defense, with the view of obtaining a safe return to my native land though I cherish towards it the feelings which become me as a man, still, as matters now are, I can be absent from it without regret. The cause which I plead is the common cause of all the godly, and therefore the very cause of Christ, a cause which, throughout your realm, now lies as it were in despair, torn and trampled upon in all kinds of ways, and that more through the tyranny of certain Pharisees than any sanction from yourself but it matters not to inquire how the thing is done. The fact that it is done cannot be denied. For so far have the wicked prevailed that the truth of Christ, if not utterly routed and dispersed, lurks as if it were ignobly buried. While the poor church, either wasted by cruel slaughter or driven into exile, or intimidated and terror-struck, scarcely ventures to breathe. Still her enemies press on with their wanted rage and fury over the ruins which they have made, strenuously assaulting the wall, which is already giving way. Meanwhile, no man comes forth to offer his protection against such furies. Any who would be thought most favorable to the truth merely talk of pardoning the error and imprudence of ignorant men, for so those modest personages speak, giving the name of error and imprudence to that which they know to be the infallible truth of God and of ignorant men, to those whose intellect they see that Christ has not despised, seeing he has deigned to entrust them with the mysteries of his heavenly wisdom. Thus all are ashamed of the gospel. Your duty, most serene prince, is not to shut either your ears or mind against a cause involving such mighty interests as these. How the glory of God is to be maintained on the earth inviolate, how the truth of God is to preserve its dignity, how the kingdom of Christ is to continue amongst us compact and secure. The cause is worthy of your ear, worthy of your investigation, worthy of your throne. The characteristic of a true sovereign is to acknowledge that, in the administration of his kingdom, he is a minister of God. He who does not make his reign subservient to the divine glory acts the part not of a king, but a robber. He, moreover, deceives himself who anticipates long prosperity to any kingdom which is not ruled by the scepter of God, that is, by his divine word. For the heavenly oracle is infallible which has declared that, Where there is no vision, the people perish. Proverbs 29, 18.
Let not a contemptuous idea of our insignificance dissuade you from the investigation of this cause. We, indeed, are perfectly conscious how poor and abject we are. In the presence of God we are miserable sinners, and in the sight of men most despised. We are, if you will, the mere dregs and off-scourings of the world, or worse, if worse can be named, so that before God there remains nothing of which we can glory save only his mercy, by which, without any merit of our own, we are admitted to the hope of eternal salvation, and before men not even this much remains, since we can glory only in our infirmity, a thing which, in the estimation of men, is the greatest ignominy even tacitly to confess. But our doctrine must stand sublime above all the glory of the world, and invincible by all its power, because it is not ours, but that of the living God and his anointed, whom the Father has appointed king, that he may rule from sea to sea, and from the rivers even to the ends of the earth, and so rule as to smite the whole earth and its strength of iron and brass, its splendor of gold and silver, with the mere rod of his mouth, and break them in pieces like a potter's vessel, according to the magnificent predictions of the prophets respecting his kingdom. Daniel 2.34, Isaiah 11.4, Psalm 2.9 Our adversaries, indeed, clamorously maintain that our appeal to the word of God is a mere pretext, that we are, in fact, its worst corruptors. How far this is not only malicious calumny, but also shameless effrontery, you will be able to decide, of your own knowledge, by reading our confession. Here, however, it may be necessary to make some observations, which may dispose, or at least assist you, to read and study it with attention. When Paul declared that all prophecy ought to be according to the analogy of faith, Romans 12.6, he laid down the surest rule for determining the meaning of Scripture. Let our doctrine be tested by this rule, and our victory is secure. For what accords better and more aptly with faith than to acknowledge ourselves divested of all virtue, that we may be clothed by God, devoid of all goodness that we may be filled by him, the slaves of sin that he may give us freedom, blind that he may enlighten, lame that he may cure, and feeble that he may sustain us to strip ourselves of all ground of glorifying, that he alone may shine forth glorious, and we be glorified in him. When these things, and others to the same effect, are said by us, they interpose and querulously complain, that in this way we overturn some blind light of nature, fancied preparatives, free will, and works meritorious of eternal salvation, with their own supererogations also because they cannot bear that the entire praise and glory of all goodness, virtue, justice, and wisdom should remain with God. But we read not of any having been blamed for drinking too much of the fountain of living water. On the contrary, those are severely reprimanded who have hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. Jeremiah 2.13 Again, what more agreeable to faith than to feel assured that God is a propitious Father when Christ is acknowledged as a brother and propitiator, then confidently to expect all prosperity and gladness from him, whose ineffable love towards us was such that he spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, Romans 8.32, than to rest in the sure hope of salvation and eternal life whenever Christ, in whom such treasures are hid, is conceived to have been given by the Father. 
Here they attack us, and loudly maintain that this sure confidence is not free from arrogance and presumption. But as nothing is to be presumed of ourselves, so all things are to be presumed of God. Nor are we stripped of vain glory for any other reason than that we may learn to glory in the Lord. Why go farther? Take but a cursory view, most valiant king, of all the parts of our cause, and count us of all wicked men the most iniquitous, if you do not discover plainly that, therefore we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God, 1 Timothy 4.10, because we believe it to be life eternal to know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent, John 17.3. For this hope some of us are in bonds, some beaten with rods, some made a gazing stock, some proscribed, some most cruelly tortured, some obliged to flee, we are all pressed with straits, loaded with dire execrations, lacerated by slanders, and treated with the greatest indignity. Look now to our adversaries, I mean the priesthood, at whose beck and pleasure others ply their enmity against us, and consider with me for a little by what zeal they are actuated. The true religion which is delivered in the scriptures, and which all ought to hold, they readily permit both themselves and others to be ignorant of, to neglect and despise, and they deem it of little moment what each man believes concerning God and Christ, or disbelieves, provided he submits to the judgment of the church with what they call implicit faith, nor are they greatly concerned, though they should see the glow of God dishonored by open blasphemies, provided not a finger is raised against the primacy of the apostolic see and the authority of the Holy Mother Church." Why, then, do they war for the mass, purgatory, pilgrimage, and similar follies, with such fierceness and acerbity, that though they cannot prove one of them from the word of God, they deny godliness can be safe without faith in these things, faith drawn out, if I may so express it, to its utmost stretch? Why? Just because their belly is their God, and their kitchen their religion, and they believe that if these were away, they could not only not be Christians, but not even men. For although some wallow in luxury, and others feed on slender crusts, still they all live by the same pot, which without that fuel might not only cool, but altogether freeze. He, accordingly, who is most anxious about his stomach, proves the fiercest champion of his faith. In short, the object on which all to a man are bent is to keep their kingdom safe or their belly filled, not one gives even the smallest sign of sincere zeal. Nevertheless, they cease not to assail our doctrine, and to accuse and defame it in what terms they may, in order to render it either hated or suspected. They call it new and of recent birth. They carp at it as doubtful and uncertain. They bid us tell by what miracles it has been confirmed. They ask if it be fair to receive it against the consent of so many holy fathers, and the most ancient custom. They urge us to confess either that it is schismatical in giving battle to the church, or that the church must have been without life during the many centuries in which nothing of the kind was heard. Lastly, they say there is little need of argument, for its quality may be known by its fruits, namely the large number of sects, the many seditious disturbances, and the great licentiousness which it has produced. No doubt it is a very easy matter for them, in presence of an ignorant and credulous multitude, to insult over an undefended cause. But were an opportunity of mutual discussion afforded, 
that acrimony which they now pour out upon us in frothy torrents, with as much license as impunity, would assuredly boil dry. 1. First, in calling it new, they are exceedingly injurious to God, whose sacred word deserved not to be charged with novelty. To them, indeed, I very little doubt it is new, as Christ is new and the gospel new. But those who are acquainted with the old saying of Paul, that Christ Jesus died for our sins and rose again for our justification, Romans 4.25, will not detect any novelty in us. That it long lay buried and unknown is the guilty consequence of man's impiety. But now when, by the kindness of God, it is restored to us, it ought to resume its antiquity just as the returning citizen resumes his rights. 2. It is owing to the same ignorance that they hold it to be doubtful and uncertain. For this is the very thing of which the Lord complains by his prophet, The ox knoweth his owner, and the ass his master's crib. But Israel doth not know, my people doth not consider. Isaiah 1.3 But however they may sport with its uncertainty, had they to seal their own doctrine with their blood, and at the expense of life, it would be seen what value they put upon it. Very different is our confidence, a confidence which is not appalled by the terrors of death, and therefore not even by the judgment seat of God. 